Welcome to Vino Week, episode 39. Well, welcome to Vino 101. I'm Bill. And I'm Al. We're ready to talk wine and wine business. The wine, yes. All things about the world of wine. Um, so where should we start? Should we start with business stuff or what do you think? Al? I'm going to let you uh, take the reins here, Bill. Okay. Guide, guide, the, guide the truck that could be ready ready to careen over the hill. That's that's just fine. So why don't we start a little bit in the, the land of wine business, the, um, the article on Opus One and suing their barrel supplier. Okay, let me uh, let me pull that up. Yeah, this is about uh, well, I'm, I'm most people have heard of Opus One, but it's uh, Opus One is a um, it's uh, originally was a was was a, a business venture with the Rothschild family in France and uh, the Mondavi family in Napa Valley, and uh, they wanted to make. Uh, a super the collaboration for was for a super high-end uh, brand and they have basically succeeded in that opus okay. one wines are great um pretty pricey though i haven't looked recently that's not you know that's out of my purview as far as buying but i'm sure they're in the 250 300 bottle range uh they are suing their one of their barrel suppliers for uh, shipping them contaminated barrels, barrels contaminated with uh, TCA, which is uh, trichlorazinol. Did I say that right? I have I no idea. <laughs> I, I have no idea. Basically, it's a contaminant that uh, dumbs down the wine. Um, usually wines that are contaminated with TCA, uh, they don't really... Um, uh, exhibit a whole bunch of um, flavors as far as aromas. Um, they can be, uh, they're just dumb. It's like uh, they, 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 they taste and sometimes smell like nothing. So um, obviously you don't want that in your in your um, your wine warehouse. But they're suing for a lot of money, uh, $471,000 uh, in damages. And it's just really from 10 barrels. So that gives you an idea of how much the juices um, is uh, worth. 590 There's, gallons of Cabernet. Yeah. So what that is, is that's, yeah, that's 10 barrels, yeah. 59 gallon barrels. Yeah. The barrels, um, uh, the wine loss, they say, uh, for the barrels, they're suing for the cost of the barrels also. So the barrels cost essentially $1,000 a piece. That's what a, a, a good quality barrel costs these days, a French barrel. So the guy that sold them the barrels, the broker, is saying, hey, uh, you know, I just sell the barrels. <laughs> I, you know. I don't I, test them. Yeah, I don't make them. Right. I don't just, test them, man. I'm just I'm selling just, them. I'm just the middleman here. So, but they basically named everybody. And I, I think we can agree that this is something that they probably try to take care of and handle outside of the purview of the courts because you know when you have a brand of this this magnitude and, and of this stature you really don't want this type of stuff getting out in the press yeah i think that's what i find most interesting about this article is just the fact that it's 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 it, that this whole thing's been written about that they're not they didn't even they you know, took legal action to solve this problem versus just, you know, having a meeting and saying, hey, we need to be reimbursed. But 
Um, and as you say, it can really affect the brand. You know, there are people who will probably buy that wine that have no clue on what TCA is and how it can affect the wine. And, you know, you could paint a pretty draconian picture about, oh, you just bought that. And I looked while you were talking. Yeah, they're uh, 15 vintages, uh, three, 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 three fifty. Oh boy, yeah. For a seven fifty milliliter, so gotcha. a high is four hundred, depend on where you go, and that's fifteen. So you know that could shave hundreds, potentially crash the brand. Um, that's a long way from that happening, but just it's really interesting that it, that came to light and that they couldn't settle it within themselves. I think maybe uh, twenty five years ago. They probably could have settled it amongst themselves, but, um, you know, the story of the Mandavis, um, you know, getting raided by corporations. I mean, this brand is actually owned by Constellations. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, Not once, you, once you get into a big, huge, I mean, Constellations, I, I believe, is the number, it's like, it's in the top three as far as um, wine companies in the world. So, there's a lot of levels yeah. So well, and they they control what the the top three or top four control like the like sixty percent of the market or something. I forgot we had looked like a couple years ago on that stat. It was pretty amazing how much wine they they had control over. Yeah, and it's just you know a big corporation. It's just hard to get something uh, mediated and get everybody on the same page when you have all those different levels of, of management. So it's, it's not that hard to see it going to court, you know, like I said, versus maybe 25 years ago, they said, Hey, why don't you just go ahead and, um, you know, give us 300 barrels, uh, for free on the next shipment. And, uh, you know, we'll just all forget about this, but, uh, that's not the way it works in corporate America. Yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. Well, hey, speaking of uh, wineries, um, it looks like uh, the the Wagners are back in the news building a uh, a large facility <laughs> not far from where we live. That, my friend, is a wine factory. Yeah. So we're we're talking about. Um, so last week we talked about Joe Wagner, who um, is a is the son, I think, of this guy. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, it's in, that's complicated, but uh, let's see. Uh, Joe Wagner is the son of Chuck Wagner yep. that started Camus Vineyards. Yep. And then he has two. Well, actually, has three kids. One is um, uh, Charles Wagner, and then um, the other one is um, a, a young lady. I can't think of her name right now, but. Uh, it's interesting when you go, this is a little offshoot, when you go to the Wagner brands and they talk about the family and the history, they don't mention Joe, they just mention the other two siblings and the properties that they own. Huh. Which is, I find, kind of odd. That is odd. But, but I think it's because maybe that's the way they structured the business because there's no, I mean, there's no ill will between any of the family members or anything. But I think his brand that he has, it's just, it's not, uh, it's just not part of it. It's just not, it's not mentioned in the, in the family stuff. It's almost like he's a, not even a, a kid or something. Right. That's very strange. It may, well, and it may be by design that he, yeah. 
you know, kind of what you're pointing out is that, you know, Joe or maybe, maybe they're just like, we got to keep these, you know, who knows? Maybe, you know, I could see one of my sons being like, well, we're in the same business. Don't talk about me. I want to cut my own path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what's going on. Because you see Chuck on the on the page, and you see Charlie, the son, and you see her name's Jenny. You see Jenny. Yeah. But you don't see Joe. He's not anywhere anywhere in the article <laughs> <laughs> or on the, on the web page. Just who knows? But I know that he's using he's using their the family facilities to process those wines that are made in Oregon. I mean, that's just he is. Yeah. So are, are they actually made in Oregon? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, excuse me. The wines that are the grapes that are grown and harvested in Oregon, in Oregon? Are in California. Yeah. 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 Very complicated. Is Even that, I get lost on that one. <laughs> yeah. Is that is that like you know, design in California built in China, like Apple. <laughs> That's what the Apple products say. Yeah. <laughs> similar. Similar. Yeah. It's funny. And, you know, it's uh they have it's all about recipes, man. Once you got the recipe, it doesn't matter where uh you know, where the where the pot's cooked. Yeah, that's so. for sure. But hey, what we're what what the there's a, there was an article published in our local paper about a winery that they're building for Camus, which is what seventy-two thousand square feet of warehouse, and um, I was like, maybe it's a total of seventy-two thousand square feet. I actually, and that's the first phase. Oh, yeah, wait a minute, that's, no, no, that's, no, that's one building. Second. Yeah, yeah, one building. The first phase actually involved the construction of a hundred sixty thousand square foot warehouse, and then they're going to build, I guess, a seventy-two thousand square foot factory. But where this where, where this factory is, I think is in a good place for it. For it, it's in an area that is already sort of in sort of industrialized. It's kind of in the in the northern northeastern part of San Francisco Bay, kind of on the outskirts of the bay. And there's already, you know, the Budweiser has a huge. Um, multi uh, multi million case production facility there i think they've got you know uh, this is a budweiser factory where they can drive trucks of grain in probably mill their own grain and you know make their own malt and hop hop and it has three i think there's three or four windmills now that power that thing out there they got big big windmill farm and then there's um Toyota has a massive distribution facility there. There's, I know there's, um, uh, pharma companies have manufacturing facilities in that area. So it's not a, it's not like trying to plop it into a dry Creek Valley. Yeah, no, you know, there's other warehouses around here. So the other thing is it's sort of kind of on the, you know, it's close to the Bay area. It's really close to all the road networks. There's rail there. And then it's like at the, it's easy to get to from from everywhere in the Central Valley, so they can get grapes from Napa, Lake County, and Mendocino, and but they can get them there. It's pretty much highway once you get to um, you know off the little back roads, and then you know it's highway everywhere um, from the um, <clears throat> from the Central Valley. So it's I think it's a well positioned place to get to build something like that. It is, and what it shows you is, you know, the, the the backside of this is that 
the Wagners, you know, they've been making wine forever. You know, they got their, their elite Camus brand, but they have. outgrew the area where they were and uh you know years ago uh, i think four or five years ago they actually got into trouble with the city of uh, the county of napa they exceeded um their um their permit for the amount of uh, wine that they're supposed to be making and this particular facility is a result of that because they can no longer you know they've reached the top of their production for that area where they are so they have they had no choice they had to actually find another place to to make their wine and moving next door to Solano County in a user-friendly, business-friendly, manufacturing-friendly area, as you mentioned, is just like a no-brainer. Yeah, smart. Besides, yeah. he's really smart. Um, uh, really smart on behalf of those guys. But, you know, they're, you know, they're figuring it out. You know, they got a lot of small, you know, probably small lot, um, uh, vineyards that they can all just truck to this big facility now and probably I don't know if they contract make wine but you probably could a facility like that they could they, their brands are, are, are pretty big so um, but yeah they, and I've never had I don't think I've ever had a bad wine <laughs> made by that family all yeah. all of their wines are good so they, they got it down yeah. hey, well they're not scaling to scale right just for a scale's sake, you know, to get bigger, they're, you know, it seems like they're growing progressively, which seems seems nice. Um, there's also some. Um, it looks like the private equity folks are um, <laughs> doing their deals. Blackstone's buying GI Partners minority stake in some wineries. Um, so this is private equity money buying. Um, other private equity companies uh, stake in a bunch of um, in a bunch of wineries. So it looks like um, this firm GI owns Duckhorn, Far ninety and Farniente. Farniente, yeah. And um, who else is in this thing? I'm trying to find this article real quick. That's uh, all right. I lost it, but this is this is really uh, indicative of what's happening now. You get these you get these first generation, or in some cases maybe even second generation farmers that started like say in the late sixties or seventies. They're just done, and for whatever reason, you know, the other people in the family, you know, they just don't want to be farmers, so they end up selling out to these these equity partnerships. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I just, you know, I have known a few people that have been part of these private equity firms and, and um, you know, also see money people, if you will, and my, you know, money people as in uh, venture capitalists. They all have the romance with wine and, you know, they all, they're like, oh, I have money, so let me, let me buy, buy some, you know, let me buy a winery. That's, um, you know, it, it, it uh, it's a, yet another thing to add to a collection if you collect stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, How it, nice. Yeah. Well, it's you know, I mean it. I I mean, is it really? You know, it's kind of akin to um, 
are you a real estate investor? Yes. Well, how many properties do you have? Well, I don't own properties. I invest in real estate trusts that invest in properties. It's like, you're okay. You're just moving money around. You're not really, you know, your hands aren't dirty in the business. So yeah. I, I kind of take it that way. That's just my own personal read on it. But uh, and I don't say anything bad or good about that. It certainly allows people to continue to make wine. And, you know, if you like a certain winery, it allows that winery to scale sometimes. But I always find it, oh, yeah, I'm in the wine business. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, you are. I don't think so. Well, let's talk a little bit about... Um, I've seen this article more than once that you, that you had sent over about uh, it's, it's cost of living in San Francisco and how it's so expensive that, um, you know, wait staff um, can't live in the city. What I like about this article, uh, other than just sort of highlighting that San Francisco has become expensive, is the transition a lot of restaurants are making to what I would call quick casual. So instead of sitting down and having somebody take your order and bring you your food, they're switching to counter service where you have to go up and order and they may bring you your food or you may have to come get it. It's really interesting. So they're trimming costs by dropping workers. Yep. Um, and I don't think it has to do with costs there. I think it has more to do to the fact that they just can't get people to wait on people. So they're having to make these changes in their restaurants. And I wonder how this will affect San, you know, San Francisco is by any stretch of the imagination, one of the gastronomic capitals of the United States. I think there's more than one, but you know, how will this affect San Francisco, you know, in terms of, you know, it, it's, um, you know, it being sort of a culinary leader in the United States and not, not only for, for food, but also for wine, believe me, this, you know, affects the wine business too. Yeah, this is, I mean, that's a good point. It's not even San Francisco. It's just how will this affect San Francisco? How will this affect uh, New York? How will this affect markets in, say, uh, Washington and D.C.? Um, you know, all these these food mecca, um, that food meccas that we have here in, in the U.S. Um, I don't, I mean, as far as San Francisco goes, I mean, the article the one thing I find interesting about the article says how um, San Francisco is so expensive that it's it's becoming a crisis. I mean, it's really kind of always been no, this way. That's why I'm just like part of the. I I mean I much of this is rehash from like yeah it's expensive yeah yeah it's bad it's a crisis. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I read somewhere um, that. 65% of the, the space that's available for housing, it's rented. I mean, there's more people that are renting there than, than actually like, you know, own and live, you know, owner occupied. And, you know, there's a reason for that. If <laughs> you can yeah. get so much for rent. Yeah. So you could live somewhere else and you could, uh, you know, you can make a, a tidy, uh, tidy income by just renting it out. Yeah. And there are a lot of, um, um, I mean, it's to the point that real estate's so valuable that laws that they had put in place to make it cost prohibitive to do, you know, take a, you know, take a building and convert it into an apartment or um, even, even, even do things that are costly, like to up the rent because there's, you know, there's some rent control law in San Francisco. 
that landlords are doing it. And what I mean by that is like paying off the lease for existing tenants, like buying them out. Yes. And then, you know, kicking everybody out, like remodeling the building and, you know, upping the rent like 100%. But I've heard some just insane rents, you know, one bedroom places going for four or five grand. What does it say? The average, the median home price? The median home. For like a condo, it's probably 1.2 million for like a little two bedroom condo. Yeah. Oh, I wouldn't even, I don't even know if it's a two bedroom. They're saying the median home is one six. Jeez. Um, and like, look, you know, tech workers say there's. They say sixty percent of tech workers can't afford those homes. Tech workers make a lot of money in San Francisco. Yeah. They're not. They're not making fifty k a year. They're probably making double that or triple that. Yeah. Um, you know, on average, the median. So it's it's really you know it's expensive, and the rents are just they're just. It's just stupid. Some of the rents I hear. Yeah, my uh, my son, um, one of his contemporaries, she just moved to the city, and there are four girls that live, four women, young women, yep. that live in um, an apartment, and I believe their rents right around forty five hundred. Yeah, and they're just. Uh, it's it's essentially it's I think it's a two bedroom place, but they they were allowed to convert it to where they could <laughs> dice up the rooms. Or, I mean, but that's what it's come to. And yeah. like and to your point, these these young workers they're garnering some pretty fairly serious income, at least by you know my standards. Yep. You know they're 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 making they're making some pretty big bank by most standards. Yeah. You know by absolutely most standards. And it's like, you know, that, that story you just told about four people living in, in a, you know, in a two bedroom place is indicative of what you hear and, and used to hear in New York, you know, people go to, I went to New York and I'm living in a, you know, 300, 400 square foot space, which are, and there's nothing wrong with that. I I don't, you know, I, I wouldn't feel too bad for these people. They have jobs yeah. and they're living in, you know, a world-class city. However, it's not what folks are used to out here. So it's garnering a lot of attention and it's causing businesses to make a lot of adjustments. And so it, if you were in the restaurant business, what? how would you tackle it? You've got less people that, that can actually afford to be anywhere even near. I mean, think about it. You're working in a restaurant and you're getting paid 15, 16, 17 bucks an hour or whatever it is. You obviously you can't live in the city. So where do you live? Where do you go out? You go okay. You could go to the East Bay. That's not much better. Yeah, you, you I, gotta, you're gonna have to go to like you know you're gonna be on a bar train to like um 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 I can't remember the last stop. You know, like up up. Uh, uh yeah, you're talking about going out to like um going uh, going north. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're out. That that's quite a ride. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's what, or, you know, taking it all the way to the end of the line by Walnut Creek and Pleasant Hill and then driving out, you know, out on four, out to the Delta, you know. But, I mean, there are people that do that. They get up at five in the morning or earlier. Yeah. Or I should say get up at four to make the five train so they're in the city at six. Or, you know, they're driving in earlier for an hour or so to work that kind of job. Which is really, you know, that's who it really hurts. And as far as being a restaurant owner, 
depends on what kind of restaurant it is. You know, if you're going after a Michelin star, that's a different, yeah, you know, different beast than slinging breakfast, you know, breakfast burritos or, you know, bar and grill stuff, which, I mean, there are businesses that thrive in the city on that because, of, you know, people got to eat during the day and um, it's just really hard. I don't know if I was a, uh, a physical store owner in San Francisco at a restaurant, I, you know, might be time for the food truck. Yeah, yeah. Or you know, in addition to what you're already doing, yeah, do yeah. both. You know, yeah. do both if you can. Um, that's a yeah, whole other kettle of fish. That's why you see all those food trucks. That's right. Well, hey, speaking of food, that's a nice segue to our article on the $5 Costco chicken. <laughs> and 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 their plan to basically – and so the whole – I mean the whole thing, there's just so much to talk about this. The bottom, uh, the the gist of the article is, um, Costco decided that they're gonna they're gonna take over their own. This is about the Costco rotisserie chicken, so they're gonna secure their own supply by having contracts with their own farms, and they decided Nebraska is the place to do this. So they went out and, you know. It sounds like they went out and made it happen. They signed up a bunch of farmers. These guys are building farms. And the stats are like, they're just insane. They 78 million of these so chickens. Just for a moment, bro. Yeah. 500 giant barns. Yeah, that's, 78 million chickens last year. 78 million. That's incredible. I, that's a lot that of chickens. That was their twenty four. That was their twenty fourteen. Ah, that's true. That's true. So I mean, just imagine what it is now. Almost five years ago. Yeah. That's and they're true. not going to. They're not going to change the price. No, they're that's that's the price. They're you know that, that's the bottom line. But um, what I found interesting about this article was that, uh, that one of the things that raised my uh, ire was that Costco is um, they're the they're the largest competitor to Whole Foods for selling organic foods, which is pretty interesting to me that they're, they're pushing out so much organic food that, the you know, they, I guess you could say they almost like cause Whole Foods to uh, change their, uh, change their ways. And uh, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty crazy. So you're, you're into the farming bill. This, I'm going to let you take over this um, farming <laughs> thing. I know you found a couple of things that are pretty interesting. Let well, us have- I, 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 yeah, the biggest thing for me is just reading about the farmers and, you know, they, they talk a lot in the article about how these guys are farmers and they do a lot of like handshake deals, you know, look in the eye, handshake deals. And it's based on, you know, it's based on intent rather than, you know, what something says in the, you know, in the contract. And it, uh, I don't know. It's just, I mean, I'm, I'm reading some quotes by the farmers in here and they're like, well, there, yeah, there's been some challenges that haven't been covered by the contract, but you know, it kind of got resolved. And then you keep reading. It's like, well, they haven't, they haven't let us see the latest contracts. I'm interested in signing up, but they won't until I, like make some kind of intent that I'm going to, you know, start working with these guys. I get to see the, the contracts and, you know, these farmers have to, they have to take the 
risk on the pl property plant and equipment. So those 500 barns, they cost a ton of money. They got to go to the bank and get the loan for that. And then they got to grow chickens to pay for it. Um, and their supplier, they have one person they sell the chickens to at any time. I'm sure that contract says, oh, if you do X, Y, and Z, we can buy from another supplier or you're out or, oh, man. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. What a what a risk. It's a huge risk. And um, it sounds like it's pretty competitive in the in – the, they talk a little bit about the other suppliers, Purdue and Pilgrim's Pride. Maybe and they have a tournament system for their farmers where if you're the lowest performer, they take money from the highest performers and redistribute the wealth. I mean, it does not sound like a good business to be in. A tough, it's tough business. And then the last thing from a farm standpoint is they're talking about how Nebraska's been farming. Farming community in general's been hard hit. You know, this might help them in the future doing this chicken thing. And to illustrate how hard hit it is, um, bushel of corn um, in Nebraska is $3.30 a bushel, the same price that it sold for in 1973. Wow. So yeah. the farmer that's talking about this started farming in 73, and he's getting the same price for his crops. Um, you know what? That's unbelievable. He must be getting some type of subsidy, though. Yeah. To make up for the price not going up at all, farm bill was eight hundred and sixty billion. I think they just passed, or maybe five sixty, um, and like eighty percent of its subsidies. Um, yeah. And most farmers do not like good farmers. Most quality farmers do not like subsidies. They want them all gone. Yeah. Um, because what they say it does is the subsidies encourage people who should not be farming to farm. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes um, sense too. Yeah, really makes sense. There used to be a program called PIC, Payment in Kind, that started when I was in high school, where I was viscerally involved in this business. And the farmers that were um, actually farming at that time hated that legislation because a bunch of people who had not farmed for years got back in, and the government paid them not to grow certain things. So as long as you could say that you had a farm and you could prove it, you could enter this pick program and basically get paid not to plant anything. So you didn't have to do any work. Yeah, it sounds like a horrible idea. It's really but, horrible uh, legislation. Yeah. Um, now, what I think is the other thing that this article doesn't talk about is this, and we, we see this more and more because of the way our food is supplied to us and it's grown is that, you know, this is like monocropping. So now we're going to take all the chickens that Costco buys and we're going to grow them in the same place. Mm. We're going to grow them from the same stock and we're going to use the same farmers to grow them. It is, one of those farmers has one problem they're all going to have that problem and it's all going to their costco is not going to have any chicken so if you want to run this out run this out to the latest um romaine lettuce e coli thing that we had yep. where the the fda said just stop eating or we're banning it all and it turns out it's one farm in california whose pond whose reservoir they had a reservoir pond that had got got 
E. coli in it, which is not hard to do. It's fecal matter that gets into this yeah. stuff. I mean, you're on a farm, you're in an open open reservoir. It waters the it waters the lettuce. It can happen easily. And when you see uh, farming production at a scale like this, this is the kind of stuff that happens where, you know, there will be a point in time where you know you get you know chickens get sick and boom, you know, there's no chickens at Costco. Um, and the, the, the flip side to that is the decentralized model where there's a bunch of small farms or farms do a little bit of everything. What's they grow that? chickens, they have cows, they grow vegetables, um, and you got a, you got tons of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, it, they don't really talk a little, a lot about sort of the, the effects of that. Um, but I think these farmers are going to have a really, really hard time. And they talk about the market power that Costco has. Where it's like they're coming in, and it's like, well, everybody's going to chicken, aren't you? Yeah. Well, yeah. I have a question for you, real quick. Um, where, I mean, if you're ramping up to this degree for an area, where do the workers come from? Oh, there are. I'm sure there. Are, a lot of them are migrant. It's migrant labor. But I mean, in this, in this, in our political environment, how do you, how do you ramp up and find people? I mean, that's that's got to be a concern, also a, yeah. a big concern. I don't. I don't. They just get them. You know, it's I. They just get them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah, I. It, it's illegal labor. Okay. It's illegal labor. That's what I wanted you to. to no, no, no. I'm just. I, I. I don't mean to be transparent. I mean they just get them. They. They have a foreman who um, knows. You know, I got a cousin. <laughs> you know, I got a foreman that's got a cousin, and then next thing you know, you got thirty workers. You know, okay. and a lot of these people are like, don't ask, don't tell. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's not unlike a lot of other uh, um, farming ventures. You know, I just. Uh... Well, the wine, the wine people I know are using the um, the guest worker visa program. There is such a thing. I can't remember. It's an HV B2 or something visa. But yeah. there are very strict rules on how. Um, those workers have to be treated. They have to be provided housing. That housing has to meet certain standards. Um, and that's, you know, those those are the people that are legal. And, you know, they, they, um, they also, interestingly enough, cannot prevent them. So if you hire a worker, this is what I understand, and they come to work for you, you they don't, they can go work for somebody else. Um, hmm. if they're paid more, like they'll, I, I've heard this, you know, or I've heard this before. Evidently it's very competitive and it's kind of a messed up system. So um, you've done all the paperwork you, and you've got this person here and then they could just in a few weeks, find something else and move on to another spot as long as their visa is current. Yep. Uh, and, and like I've heard for like pennies more an hour, they're willing to move. My gosh. Yeah. Wow. Yep, super competitive. Um, yeah. And I Sounds talked good. to, you know, this is from somebody who runs a vineyard management company. And then, you know, out on a farm in Nebraska is, you know, is Customs and Border Patrol or ICE or whoever, Immigration Service, I mean, are they, you know, are they out raiding chicken farms? Well, it's been done. Yeah, but I yeah, mean, you, I, I mean, if you get on the wrong side of a, you know, a representative or a congressman or something. No, well, that's different. Yeah, you know, things, that's, things things happen. Things can happen, but um, 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, there, this article does go on to talk about the immigrants and, and, uh, you know, how I, I mean, ultimately what a lot of people don't know, um, Cesar Chavez was not a fan of illegal immigration. In fact, he, he, he worked with uh, Diane Feinstein, who's still, um, uh, a congressperson, uh, a senator for us, all of the California congressional uh, delegation to, to uh, you know, shut down illegal immigration. And the reason is, is that it hurt the United Farm Workers wages in the United States. It brought them down. Yeah. And a business is incentivized to get cheap labor. Correct. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, um, so this is why things like E-Verify are good programs you know, you got to prove that your workers are legal to, to be here. Um, and ultimately, this all comes down to that Costco chicken. You should probably be paying 10 bucks for that chicken. You should be, yeah. Well, just, that's their lost leader, and they're sticking to it, man. Yeah. They're not going to change. And they're they're definitely seem like they're very committed to making sure that that price stays the way it is. They, is uh, they can prove, they can prove unequivocally that – that chicken results in um, profit because people, although they sell it at a loss or near a loss, they know that people come into the store for that reason. Oh, I'm gonna, I'm, you know, um, I need Once to go. To, I need to go to Costco. <laughs> I don't really want to go. Well, I don't have anything for dinner, so I'm just gonna run by and pick up a chicken. And while I'm people think this chicken, way, look at those nuts. I'm gonna pick up. Yeah. I, I, that, we, we call it the hundred dollar challenge. Can you get out of Costco for under a hundred bucks? It's hard. Yeah, that's pretty difficult. Yeah, it's that hard because it's like, oh, I need batteries or printer cartridges. <laughs> Boom, you're gone right there. A hundred bucks right there. I need some peanut butter. Yeah, I mean, yeah. who doesn't need a five pound jar of peanut butter? I mean, I could use that. <laughs> I just like to see the Costco gifts. Like you go, you roll through people's house or at work. What'd you get for Christmas? And everybody, you know, out of ten people, seven of them have like the same thing from Costco. <laughs> yes. You know, I got the tequila set from Costco this year. Yeah, wow. me too. Hey, Bill. Um, uh, this isn't a really smooth segue, but I got a question for you. Uh, could you live on eighteen thousand three hundred and fifty pounds a week? 18,000 pounds? No, I mean, in in, uh, in uh, British money, 18,350 uh, pounds. A week? Um, yeah. Yeah, easy. You can live on that, you think? 18,000 pounds a week? Ah, man, it seems like that's, that's really cutting back your lifestyle, doesn't I it? I so. <laughs> I'm going to have to hang up the G4. You're, <laughs> you're going to have to sell the G4. Quick, I, you're quick. clearly talking about our friend... Malaya, VJ. Yeah, yeah. He's. I mean, he's. His assets have been all of his global assets have been frozen, man. So he's on a stipend. That's his stipend. The guy's got to cut back, man. Yeah. Well, and and uh, he has an amazing legal team. I mean, he's clearly he's clearly done something wrong. <laughs> um, or he's really pissed off a power structure in India. They want that guy back on their soil. They do. 
just just to be clear, eighteen thousand pounds is is roughly twenty three thousand dollars. Yeah, I thought you were saying like twenty three a year, and I was like, ah, you know, I could probably do that. My head was back in the four dollar, five dollar chicken. I'm like, yeah, I could thousand dollars, twenty thousand a week, man. Hey, man, he's a he's a billionaire, man. Okay. Well, and he's not giving up. No, he's not giving up. He's not he's giving been, that. Uh, he's actually been extradited, or he, uh, they, the court has said that. They he said can. they. This is the thing that kills me. Didn't they say that a year ago? Yes. This guy's awesome. He's 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 my favorite guy. Yeah. Every time I look at him now, I can't get that image um, uh, of him riding that motorcycle with that yeah. engine, or like you know, go kart mini bike with the V eight in it. With the V eight in it. <laughs> And so he's trying to what he's trying to do is he's trying to hold off because they have uh, their national elections are coming up next year. And with those, they're going to get some new people in power, which might be more beneficial for him. So he's he's obviously trying to drag this out. Um, he's using, um, you know, he's got some medical problems, I guess. But um, they're saying, hey, this guy needs to come over and he needs to face the you know, he needs to face the court system. But uh, he's fighting it tooth and nail. You got good attorneys, man. Yeah, I am. Well, at you know, twenty k a week, I would too. Yeah, yeah. But now that's not for his lawyer's fees. I mean, that's something else, man. No, well, I'm just that's saying. For, that's for food and shelter bills. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying though, like you know, it can help pay my legal bills. Uh. So anyway, that was a quick update on our guy. <laughs> we'll see what happens next. We'll see if they got him to an airport next week. Yeah, these these um, these huge um, these beverage magnets, man. They can do they can do some pretty incredible stuff. Did you uh, did you get a chance to look at that um, article about the Illinois distributor that just made a, a big payout to the um, Tax and Trade Bureau? Yes. Yep. Yeah, the thing that I find interesting about that. Okay, so they you know they got their I guess their hand was in the cookie jar, and so they paid the Tax and Trade Bureau three hundred twenty five thousand dollars. Um, they did this on their own volition because apparently the Tax and Trade Bureau can't um, mandate any types of fines. So they just did this out of the goodness of their heart. Um, kind of almost like, uh, I don't know, a guy going in to rob a bank and he gets caught robbing the bank and he says, hey, look, um, hey, I'll just give you, you know, $50,000 here. and uh, you I'll know, we'll give call you 10% right. of what I stole <laughs> That's what we're talking about. Where am I wrong here? That's what happened. Pretty much. Pretty much. So anyway, <laughs> that just you know that just goes along the uh, um, the cliche of it's better to beg forgiveness than to ask permission. Yeah, there we go. That's good. That's just, good. You know, I'm just gonna do it and see what happens. What's the worst that can happen? <laughs> worst that can happen. Jail time. I'm sorry. Yeah, I gives a little bit of my money. I'll give a little bit of the money back. All right. Well, let's let's uh, talk a little bit about um, uh, about wine. The uh, there was an article in the uh, Chronicle, I mean, the Chronicle's wine section called a wine site called the Press, that has uh, uh, a listing of wineries that have free tastings. So mm-hmm. if you're going to be in the area. Uh, for the holidays, it's a good thing to review. We'll put this in the, in the show notes or in the post. But um, 
I think one of the things that's really interesting is when I got here to Sonoma County 14 years ago, almost all the wineries I went to in Sonoma County had free tastings. And and almost all of them, I invariably met somebody who was involved in the production process. Yep. Um, I went to Gary Farrell, probably one of the first wineries I visited. I got a tour and, you know, I had some relatives. This is like a year later. It's probably, it's probably 05. And uh, Gary Farrell's driving the forklift by, you know, this is after he'd done the deal, his big deal. Yep. And he gave us the tour. Um, you don't see things like that anymore. It's really rare. And things have become much more, um, I'll say packaged. So the experience you go to. Uh, two years ago, eight, even 18 months ago, you didn't need reservations at, at uh, like Iron Horse Vineyards. To, you just drive up and taste um, yeah, the people that were like uh, in the admin office would come out yep. and you know, walk you around or whatever. You know, they'd stop whatever they were doing and just you know show you around and then take you to the back to the parlor and you know pour you some wines. And that was it was just so much more definitely different. You can still get that experience, but you have to search it search it out now. Yeah, and so you these know. places are um, the the places and the listings are are good. I mean, they're, they're great to go, you know, like check it out. Um, and some of these places are, um, are, are fun to go to. Um, like Jay Rickards, I've been to Jay Rickards. Uh, we've been to Jay Rickards. I yeah, think it was yeah, on yeah. one of the wine road things. And, um, uh, I, he, he actually took us, I don't know if you were there that time, but he actually took us and showed us old, his old vines. Oh, I don't, I don't think I saw. I wasn't there during that time. Yep, he like gave us a vineyard tour and uh, was talking to us about how he had went to Europe and he had saw old vines in Europe and they were nowhere near as old as the uh, vines that he had and they weren't as old in Europe because of the war, World War Two. Um, but he had vines back to like the late late nineteenth century. Um, Coppola's Winery is awesome to go to. It is a it it's. It has a pool. It's like one of the craziest places. It's kind of like movie museum a little bit. There's like movie stuff in there. There's like this beautiful pool with like these cabanas. Winery is really cool. Um, and the restaurant. It's a cool restaurant. Yeah. Um, Corbell's, nice. Corbell's awesome because it is, you know, it's they, they can put champagne on the bottle and it's still... Uh, it's got a nice little, um, if you're out that way and you want to go have a picnic, they've got a really nice deli there. I also found uh, a couple of times that I've tasted there, I found the staff to be really knowledgeable. And um, up, they dialed the conversation in based on who was tasting. They were, and I, this has happened more than once there. So I started to talk about some things and they're like, oh, they like brought a completely different tasting menu out. Um, a flight, a series of flights based on the conversation, um, which I just thought was, uh, it was just cool. Um, they do that at Ferrari Carano. They have a, a different, uh, different rooms and different flights. Uh, yeah, and you you, know, just depending on the level of education that the actual group yeah. has. So all of these, all of the, I, I could go through every one of these places. I, you know, you can't go wrong by going to any of these places. And in my opinion, 
and and still get a little bit of um, you know some of these are still what I would call old Sonoma County now what the other thing I'll say about this article is the experience that I was talking about and Al was talking about where you know like the admin staff might come out or you might meet the winemaker or possibly the owner that's still happening in Mendocino County so you can they, they just haven't been hit yet as much as Sonoma and Napa has I'm, I would say Napa is probably the leader in all of this and the Central Coast has a lot of that too um, you know down by in Paso Paso Robles and Santa Barbara there's a lot of really like high-end wineries there where you're getting a very professional not that the others aren't professional but a very packaged experience and you're probably gonna have to pay for tastings whereas you go to Mendocino County you can just you can drive into a winery and you know be lucky to find someone when you put you gotta like yes. knock on the door and like knock the on the door <laughs> and then they're thrilled to see you come taste our wine one yeah. of those things yeah that's yeah. that is definitely back and harking back into the old days but uh yeah the package thing is not that bad if you're going to go for the package view you it's know at the bad. top it, of this list is mary edwards yeah and that is probably um just right here around our area that's probably one of the best places to go if you're a fan of Chardonnay and Pinot Noirs, and um, actually Mary Edwards makes an incredibly awesome Sauvignon Blanc also, but um, it's pretty laid back. You go into a private room, they sit down with you, they talk you know, in depth about the wines. Um, you don't feel rushed. Um, you do have to make an appointment, but um, it's, it's, it's well worth it. And then if you go in, um, and the prices of the wines are actually just because she's been in it for a while for for quite quite a while that's a great place to go to um i've been to just about all of these places on the list um rodney strong is a good place to go to also um they've got the big huge parlor where you actually do the tasting but they've got it set up to where you could just kind of walk around on your own and you get a bird's eye view of what's going on in the winery as you walk walk around it's like a self-guided tour uh, thing that they do, which is pretty cool. And um, if you want a really interesting, pretty, um, pretty personal, um, like Bill was saying, you want the owner to be there talking about the wines, go to um, Raffinelli. That's at the bottom of this list. Yeah. You're going to either get um, Mrs. Raffinelli, you might get her husband, you might get their daughter, but you're going to get one of the Raffinellis. <laughs> That's yeah. going to be pouring the wines for you, probably. And uh, showing you around, it's pretty small. Um, you can't buy, I mean, it's pretty limited on what you can buy there, but all the wines are really well made. They do Zen and Cabernet, and uh, that's a great um, that's a, a great place to, it's kind of right in the heart of Dry Creek Valley, so that's a pretty cool place to go to also. Yeah, you just can't go, you can't go wrong um, with that. And then um, we should probably be wrapping up here. Uh, we'll also, we'll also, you might want to talk a little bit about this Al, but we'll also post a field guide to Italian sparkling wines. This was uh, in Forbes, but um, the reason you probably, the reason you might be interested in this is that you can find some dynamite um, Italian sparklers for just ridiculous, they're ridiculous value. Um, Just, you're just some awesome, uh, awesome uh, stuff. So I heard somebody, uh, um, uh, those of you who might know a guy named Joe Rogan, he had a guest on, um, a comedian 
probably I think the day after or the Saturday after Thanksgiving and the guy was talking about how he went into a wine shop and said he wanted a bunch of really good bottles of wine but he didn't want to pay more than 20 bucks for Thanksgiving and the wine the guy in the wine shops like head exploded he the the guy that went did this said he was like living it was like he was living for the customer who walked in and asked him this question and you know so he bought a case of wine and were all bottles under 20 bucks over half of them were italian and he said Mm -hmm. they were some of the best wines he's ever had in his life and you know the guy was in the back going oh nobody knows about this wine it's Mm -hmm. awesome wine and so i'm trying to tie that into this um article on sparklers if you like sparkling wine you find a lot of really awesome italian sparklers i've um al and i get to go to a show every year called the gambara rosso and uh, i've had some of these italian sparklers and they are they're dynamite and the you know, the price points are they're, they're awesome i think so you tell me what yeah you the, especially the wines from up in uh, trentino which is kind of up in uh, the north northeastern part of Italy. Um, they grow a lot of Chardonnay and Pinot Noir up there. So um, there's, uh, you know, there's just all kinds of sparklers being made and a lot of them fit that 20 and under profile. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you could so uh, check it out. Uh, it's a good little guide there. And then uh, what are you tasting? What are you drinking? Uh, I have a bottle of uh, Col Fondo. It's, uh, you know, let me grab them. Label here real quick. Can you say that again? I I thought that there was a you might have had a uh, a virus or something. You just said okay. It's uh, cold fungal. Cold 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 I'm just I'm making light. You know, it's like I've got a supple I've got supple vita on my Parnassus. I mean sepulveda. It's spelled uh, C-O-L-F-O-N-D-O with the emphasis on the O, so it's called yeah. Fondo. Yeah. Um, but it's um, it's a sparkler from uh, northern Italy. Um, it's uh, primarily uh, Glera, so it's a, it's a Prosecco. Yeah. And um, this particular bottling, um, the winery is called uh, Bellicasal. Uh, Bellicasel. It's um, what's... When you, I think I've had little, this um, sparkler. This pro, I have think you had those ones? I think so. It's delicious. Yeah, it's this particular one. Colfondo is um, it's prosecco. That's uh, the secondary fermentation is actually done in a bottle. Um, just briefly, um, prosecco is the way it's made is it's it's fermented in big tanks. Um, it's done by the like the Marinari uh, Marinati method, and it's um, that's the Italian guy that came up with making it. But um, it's um, it's fermented in a tank, and then they bottle it directly from the tank. This particular wine, which is, is not how most, which is not how champagne is made, correct? Yeah, champagne is not made that way. And it's made, so, it's made the way you're talking about. Uh, yeah, yeah, so fermented in a bottle, yeah. And uh, so they make the wine, they make a base wine, it's dry, and then um, they actually um, put it in a bottle. In this particular case, they don't they don't really add a dosage. Um, I don't. So no added it. sugar. So no added sugar for so secondary fermentation. Uh, but what's interesting is, or not what's interesting with Italian wine in general, I always tell people if you see this label right here, you see that. I don't know if you can see it or not, but it's yeah. uh, it's they belong to the uh, Vign- Vignoli uh, Independ- Independ- Independente, 
which is a group of growers that have, uh, you know, stepped up their game and they've decided to um, make sure that the land is useful after their days on this earth are gone. And uh, that loosely translates to organic farming, um, uh, sustainable methods as far as um, their production. Uh, they don't um, buy grapes from anyone else. The grapes that are used in the production are grapes that they own and that they care for on their own properties. Uh, so they're a member of this group. Um, so naturally, wines are organically har uh, farmed. Uh, it's hand harvested. Um, this wine is, uh, I'll just, I'll flip before I talk about it. I'll say one of, one of my favorite things to have with this wine, we're going to actually have it later on today, is to bake like a camembert or bake a brie. Oh, very nice. And, and uh, sh shave some almonds on it and drizzle a little honey on it. And then, <laughs> You know, you know what to do from there. Yes, eat and drink <laughs> and be merry. So, but it's uh, it's a light straw, yellow color. It's got a light fizz. It's like a pet nat. We've never talked about those, but uh, 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 pet nat wines or pet petillant natural are wines that are also fermented in the bottle, and uh, you know, not a whole bunch of manipulation. The one thing that's interesting about this wine is that it's, I call it, it's slightly fizzy. So it's not, it doesn't have that real strong bubble fizz that you would get in um, a California sparkler or a champagne. But it's got white flower, white flowers on the nose, uh, yellow apples, um, a slight bit of uh, toasted like uh, hazelnut you can smell. And on the palate, it's really, really super clean, just apples and pears. Um, and it's got a, Pretty short, clean finish. Yeah. Price point. Uh, price point, uh, 18, 19 bucks. Yeah. Here we go with that under 20 thing again. Yeah. And it's got a little sediment in the bottle. So, like with champagne, when they do the secondary fermentation, um, they riddle the bottles and then the, all of the leaves, the dead leaves and the sediment goes towards the bottom where the cork is or the capsule that's in there. And then they, um, they pop that and they take all of the sediment out of the bottle. This bottle actually has some sediment in it. That's cool. So it's okay. not totally clear. So when you pour it, it's got like a slight a slight haze to it. That's kind of but it's kind of unique and cool. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's something that's kind of cool to to, to take to people and, and have for the holidays. And we'll probably be doing more uh, bubblies now since it's the holidays. It so is this, that time. Yeah, great great price point. For sure. That's all I got, man. Right. At, I don't have anything uh, to talk about yet. I am running an experiment based on the conversation we had last week about Elwan. I'm trying one of uh, Joe Wagner's Pinots, an Elwan Pinot. I think it's a 15 or a 16. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. um, but I bought a bottle also from the Willamette Valley of another Pinot. I think their styles will be um, dramatically different. So I'm looking for that old world sure. Pinot in the you know Oregon Pinot and I'm looking for a more fruit forward California style Pinot from Elwan but we'll see but Bill they're they're great from the same place they gotta have the same profile right you would think what about the, what you, about the terroir I was gonna say you would think the terroir would be like you know reign supreme we'll see what's in the bottle maybe it will I don't know we'll see we'll see all right stay All right. tuned <laughs> stay tuned but uh 
that's all we have for this week. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We appreciate it. Cheers. Cheers.